0: Constructing Yourself, the podcast for modern mutants interested in mindfulness, meditation, awakening, hardcore dharma, compassion, and much, much more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Steve Eisenstadt. Steven Eisenstadt, PhD, is the founder of Pacifica Graduate Institute, as well as the Academy of Imaginal Arts and Sciences. Steve is a world-renowned professor of depth psychology, an imagination specialist, and he has collaborated with many notable masters in the field, including Joseph Campbell, James Hillman, Mary Woodman, and Robert Johnson. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode that I call Dreams and the Spiritual Imagination, with Steve Eisenstadt. Steve, it's a real pleasure to have you here on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. Welcome.
1: Thank you, Michael. It is truly a pleasure for me as well.
0: It's been so long. So I think it was maybe about 15 years ago that you and I spent quite a bit of time working on your book, Dream Tending, together.
1: Yes. And in addition, I'm remembering working with you in the studio recording, and it was just an extraordinary experience, actually. I'm really happy to be back in conversation with you.
0: Yeah, me too. That was even earlier. That was like, as you said, like maybe 1999 or something. Yes. Wow. It's been that long. Okay, so what I've been noticing is that in all the years since you wrote your excellent book, Dreamtending, that I had the honor of editing with you, that way of working with dream figures and with our own internal lives, that's just become more and more relevant, I think, to people. And I see myself recommending it to people more and more as the years go by. It seems like there's something going on with your inner world, with your unconscious mind, with your dream life, something like that. And so you want to check out this book, Dream Tending. I'm curious, you know, that's a book that's something like 12 or 13 years old now, how is that material landing for people these days in your workshops and in your world?
1: What I'm noticing is that it's landing in a big way. And in fact, it's growing in terms of the interest the curiosity and the necessity, the need to really listen into dream. Am I surprised? A little bit, you know, because one would think with a technological world and things going at such a rapid pace and all these other ideas of how to get into inner life that dreams might fade a bit. Just the opposite is occurring when I'm speaking here, there, everywhere, internationally. There's more people that are involved, more people interested. And it's evolving, too, just like a dream. Dreams evolve in our life to the extent that we bring our attention to the dreams, to the dreaming experience that's living inside, is the extent to which dreams reveal themselves. And that's what I think is happening, uh, not only personally, but collectively as well.
0: And, you know, what's your most basic description of how people can work with the dreaming world like how do you sort of do the elevator pitch version of the work that you're doing with folks
1: you know the idea is that this is not dream interpretation it's not even dream analysis it's dream tending and to tend a dream is to allow the dream to come to life from the inside out that's the difference that i think makes all the difference because when the dream comes to life it has its own expression rooted not in our mind only, but in deep imagination. when we can listen to the dream from that perspective, the intelligence of the dream, the guidance that the dream offers, the way that we can work with the inner figures that are forever present in our lives, that becomes uh, a And I think, you know, that's the difference that makes all the difference, as I said. It's the idea that dream images are alive. I call them living images. And I think that's the key in the heart of the approach of dream tending.
0: Steve, what do you mean when you call a dream image a living image? That's a very intriguing phrase, living image.
1: Yeah, it is. And the way that I explain that, first, it comes out of direct experience. You know, when our eyes are closed, something else comes awake at night. And what comes awake is the dream, And I think we're trained almost, or we make an assumption that I am having that dream. And it's person centric, so that everything that is occurring in the dream is, you know, part of my doing, part of my making. When in the actuality, is that. As I said, when eyes are closed, something else is in the room along with us. And the images and the landscapes and the actions and the voices and all that is involved in the dream, it's a living landscape. It's when we get up in the morning, we write it in a journal, we then begin to try to make meaning out of it, then it begins to lose its life and it becomes something that we're trying to figure out or apply rational experience to. In the dream, images are alive alive. They interact with each other. So I say images are embodied, they have presence, they have pulse, they have the capacity to interact, to change, to do things. So when we begin from that point of view, we are in the presence of imagination, of the dream revealing itself to us. So it's a different point of view, right? It's not person-centered, it's psyche-centered or dream-centered. And as a result, I began working with dreams and with people in just quite a different way, which we can talk about if you'd like.
0: Yeah, tell me more about that.
1: You know, I start with a series of questions that are very different. Ninety-eight percent, let's say, of dream work starts with the idea, you know, tell me, what are you dreaming about? What is your dream? And I start differently. I experience that as, what dream brings you here? You can see from the very beginning, it's what dream brings you here. It's not person-centered, it's dream-centered. The second question is, who's visiting now? Not, what does this mean? The standard approach, who's visiting now? The actuality of the presence in the room along with us. And then the next question is, what's happening here? Versus, what does this dream have to do with me? To hear? What's happening here? So we almost become a naturalist of the psyche. We're really looking at the landscape, the phenomenology of what's going on. We enter into the field of dream and allow the living expression of the dream to come awake and come forward. And then we're able to interact with the images and the figures. And then too, something very extraordinary happens. Instead of us using our mind and coming from an egocentric place with the dream and the living images of the dream, there's a shift that happens, a shift. And I'm not using my mind now. I'm using a different quality of my presence, allowing the dream itself to come forward and meet me. We move out of identification, everything's about us, into relationship with the different figures and entities of the dream. That's where the libido is. That's where the passion is. That's where the living quality of what resides in the dream from the beginning begins to come forward.
0: This is... Such an intriguing take and such a powerful way of working. It reminds me a lot of, for example, very common mindfulness inquiry question, which is, what is this? Or what is happening now? You know, just looking directly at experience rather than trying to understand or conceptualize or intellectualize experience. And so I find that very fascinating and also the relationship element. But just as a clarification, what we're doing here in this dream work is not like lucid dreaming or trying to do stuff in the dream at night, correct?
1: Yeah, that is correct. It's just the opposite. Actually, you know, wherever I go internationally, people will ask me, you know, what about lucid dreaming? Can I get inside the dream and control my dream? Can I, you know, direct it into an experience or into a place? And no, because that would be the rational ego getting so involved again. You know, then you're kind of going into the landscape of dream, almost setting up, you know, private property signs. You know, it's like you're conquering the dream in a way. No, it's just not that at all. It's that we are visiting in the dream and we're getting curious, which is the idea, right? To get really deeply curious about who meets us there. Now, the difference here is who meets us in the place of the dream are the figures and images of the dream itself. Yes, it's linked to experiences that we have on the outside. Yes, you know what's going on in our bodies, and our feeling, our emotions, that's present. And to who else is present? Are the figures and the entities, you know, the animals, the creatures, the landscapes of the living psyche, of the dreamscape itself? That's who we get curious about.
0: It's so interesting. I've done a lot of reading and interacting with scientists in the neuroscience world in the last 10 years, and there's just this all-pervasive view that dreams are just kind of garbage, you know, that they're like, The mind sort of recycling all the stuff that happened during the day and maybe you know it's trying to cement memories but there's not even a sense that they're meaningless but more like it's just chaos and garbage Mm. and it's such a contrast to what you're describing can you talk a little bit about that
1: Yes. In fact, you know, they just completed a huge research study asking people, are you interested in your dreams, right? Is that something that you want to explore more deeply? And frankly, most people will say, oh, not really. (laughs) You know, (laughs) not really. In fact, if anything, just let me have a good night's sleep. Get rid of them. (laughs) Well, yeah, because at this moment in time, in particular, you know, we're faced with nightmarish images and we're reacting to what's going on in the world around us and so on and so forth. And yet, I've worked with now, what, thousands and thousands of people working with dream. It is extraordinary, the innate intelligence that's alive in each of these dream figures, images, landscapes. Even when we begin to experience something threatening or uncomfortable or you know, out of the ordinary, The intelligence that's alive in the dream is extraordinary because we're accessing imagination. And dreams, I think, are birthed from the deep imagination, the autonomous imagination with a genius of its own. So, no, I am certain at this point that dreams bring forward in our life not only a sense of who and what's moving through us, but also a sense of calling, you know, because dreams, in addition— speak to us about our desire, about our calling, about our sense of purpose. You know, that's another question that I use when I'm tending to a dream. Rather than interpreting or analyzing a dream, when we're tending to a dream, that next question is, what is the dream's desire? And notice again, what is the dream's desire? Which means that each of the figures of the dream the living images of the dream, there's a desire, there's a pull of the future that's alive and active in the dream time. And we know now that people are increasingly giving value to dream. I mean, Einstein, you know, (laughs) said the classic thing, that you can give me all the facts and figures in the world, but that doesn't get close to the real sense of knowledge. Imagination, curiosity, that's what circles the world. To access that is to really... You know, root into the intelligence that is innate and unique to each of us. Harvard Business School in the world of today just now is changing their curriculum and their curricular focus and emphasis for sure. They're putting imagination and cultivating that imagination right in the center place of what they're teaching. Why? Because in imagination, in dream comes the possibility to innovate to create, you know? And yeah, perhaps it's always about the bottom line and, you know, the competitive edge. But putting that to the side, what's being talked about and experienced in a very concrete and direct way is the extraordinary, not only creative, but healing potential possibility powers of the dream.
0: Can you tell me a little bit more about the healing powers of the dream? What do you mean when you say that?
1: Yes, part of what we do in dream tending, when I teach dream tending, one of the modules is just right there, right on the healing powers of dream. Well, let me just share an example and then I'll talk a little bit around that. A woman comes in with a dream, right? And the dream is of a vine that's growing up a tree, but the vine is very constricting. And the tree is beginning to <clears throat> feel strangled. And then we begin to see in the dream the tree even, you know, beginning to die. And she comes in quite disturbed. She is a person that her house and her backyard is right up against the wooded area. And for her in particular, you know, those kinds of images are disturbing. Well, you know, yes, it is about that, and too, when images come forward like that, particularly when they're in the backyard of a home or a house, you know, one begins to think in terms of a link to body or physical experience. And, you know, we work with the dream a little bit, and we notice that, yeah, you know, it does have somatic implication. And when I probed just a bit, she said, you know what, Steve, now that you say that, The arthritis that I'm experiencing from my shoulder up through my neck is increasingly intolerable. I'm not sure what to do. I've just been diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, and it's tough. And I've been to doctor after doctor, and it's just not loosening. The grip is too much. Okay. The dream comes forward and offers the picture. It also offers in each dream not only the wound, but the medicine, the cure. So we call that the medicinal properties of the dream and the dream images. When we went more deeply into the work and we looked at those vines, that was what was wounding. But when we really had the protection and the safety to really look even more carefully, she could see that there was sap coming out of the vines as it was growing up the tree. That sap was important because that sap Like it does, homeopathically, that which is hurting or killing also has the opportunity in a small dose, homeopathically, to cure. When she was able to take just a bit of that sap, rather than feel entwined and strangled by the whole piece, just a bit, I asked her to just rub in her hands and apply it on her neck, which she did. A warm feeling came forward. And honestly, I remember because it was just a number of weeks ago in a big group of people and her shoulder just, poom relaxed very deeply. And she felt that experience of warmth and the beginnings of healing. Now, from the dream comes the medicine. So what would it be like, I said, for the next two weeks, every day in the morning, to remember the image in the dream and to go through the same process that we've just done? And in fact, watch dreams that come forward in addition that comment further on what we're doing. And when you're taking the medicines that the doctors give you, in addition to the particular medicine that is being prescribed, what would it be like to also apply a little bit of the sap of the vine that came into your life in deep imagination and expressed itself through dream? The healing power of dreams.
0: That's really intriguing. So she's actually just in her imagination imagining putting the sap on her shoulder or whatever, correct?
1: Yes, in imagination, and I'm a big fan of, okay, it's happening in imagination. Now, I'm noticing, when I'm working with people, I notice their bodies because the body is always dreaming, right? Always dreaming, gestures, breath, facial expression. So, you know, just to touch the sap. Rub it in the hands, literally. Literally, and then, with the hand apply onto the neck. It's really wonderful to work that way. To, it's high play, right? Children do it all the time. They're in playtime, they're in you know child's play, and that is not to be you know relegated to some kind of childishness. It's very different than that. It's in the imagination, inside of the imagination, allowing the potency and the genius of imagination to come forward and to be part
0: of our lives. So fascinating. Now, you brought up the idea of the desire of the dream or the libido in dream. You know, to me, this is extremely fascinating and intriguing direction. As you probably know, in the world of meditation or Buddhism, there is a really strong Habit of like negating desire or suppressing desire, or desire is why you suffer, and desire is bad. And it's so interesting to me because when we're doing Jungian techniques or active imagination or dream tending, like you're describing, it seems like there's a much, I don't know, what I would call like a healthier or more intimate or deeper relationship with, you know, the passion or desire or libido. And so, how would you talk about that with regards to dream tending? Like, how can people develop like a healthier and more alive and more creative and generative relationship with their own desire using this dream work?
1: Yes, well, you know, it starts with the living image again, because each image carries with it, intrinsic to the living image, just like intrinsic to each of us, there is a desire a life force, a passion of one sort or the next, right? And the idea is how do we get into relationship with those images, with that innate desire embedded within? So the difference is instead of trying to possess or trying to somehow get them away because they're too much, you know? Instead, moving out of identification with the image into a kind of relationship with the image. Once we're in a relationship with the image, a safe, secure relationship. So we take the time, you know, what is the support that's required if a monster is chasing us? Believe me, in the world of today, so many people are reporting hour after hour You know, day after day, all the research that's being done now, people are having monster dreams, so many different versions of that, somebody chasing somebody with a gun, some kind of virus that's on the attack, of course. I mean, how would they not, right? The point is, if we try to just simply eradicate that, get rid of that, somehow medicate that away, distract away, drink that away, it doesn't quite work because what's going to happen? Those figures just keep coming back in a different form or formulation. Plus, we miss out. We miss the other part of that, which is so difficult. And we miss out the kind of energetic force, the desire, the push that's moving through those images. Is it okay to feel threatened like that? No. Is it okay to have nightmares night after night? Of course not. What is the way out? In my mind and from the lens of working with imagination and dream, the way out is the way in, the way in to tending to the living image, to allow the image to come alive in front of us. Now we do that with, again, support and protection, and we get curious, who's visiting now? Who are you? And if we get really particular, in other words, we see a monster and we're scared to death, and of course the first thing we do is turn and run, Yes, that makes sense. On the other hand, you know, just like a child does when they see a really difficult bug, think of a really yucky bug or a big spider that they're frightened of at first reaction. You know, it's fight or flight, of course, it's survival. You're gonna move back and, you know, get some distance. On the other hand, if you notice a child like that, uh, then they start to get curious. And then they start moving forward, and they get, oh, my gosh, look at that. It's so long. And the same with working in this way. Again, it's not childish. It's childlike in the sense of allowing oneself to deepen into imagination. It is very evolved, actually, as a process. So the monster is in the room, you know, and now I'm starting to see it more carefully, because I'm feeling supported, I have an allied figure with me perhaps. And now a curious thing happens the potency of the monster begins to yield. the fear and the threat yields to something else and we begin to see who's visiting now, who's here, who's truly here? behind the veil you know what's in this dream, what's in the room along with me and we get to know it. The words that we use is to befriend. We begin the process of befriending. Is it immediate? No. But over some days and weeks and with support? Yes. It's very, very possible. In fact, so many things that we see in movies, and Star Wars, for example, you know, when we first encounter Darth Vader, you know, it's a big force and it's destructive. And to the extent that you have the support like Yoda and you have Luke in the room, you know, regardless of what episode you're in in Star Wars, you begin to see that which is so fearful, so feared, you know, behind the veil. When we bring our attention and we begin the process of befriendment, something else happens. It depotentiates in fear. And the libido that's inside comes forward, and now we can really access that for purposes in our own life, and our own creative experience. About six months ago, I was in Montana, and I was working with a group of folk. And there were, of course, there's grizzly bears in Montana, and one of the things you don't want to get involved with is being outside in the open places and get caught, particularly between a grizzly bear and a cub. You know, that's very, very dangerous. Anyway, a dream comes forward, and this person has a dream. Uh, Actually, notice how I just said that. This person has a dream. Let me go the other direction. A dream visited this person, right? Mm -hmm. Made a claim on this person's attention. Came into the dream time. And the dream was of a bear in the forest chasing. She looked around, and oh my God, right behind her, this, and snarling teeth. So, snarling face, teeth showing scared to death, running, running, all of a sudden something horrible happens where while she's running, she's noticing that her legs are giving out, she's getting weaker, and she's worried that the monster was going to claw her and, you know, harm her in some way. Classic dream, being chased, classic theme, or the intruder is another version of that. So what do we do? You know, first, Do we think about what is chasing me? Is there something in my life in the last 24 hours in the last three months that is threatening in my life? Yes, we visit that place. Go again. What about the chase? Is there something about the chase, just archetypally in the collective imagination of human experiences? Is there something about that that's resonant? Yes, of course there is but those are still storytelling. And that's still a sense of making that bear into something other than the actuality of the bear in the dream. The way that I moved with that in terms of dream tend is, whoa, you know, yes, that is frightening. You know, before we even go there, In other words, before we even start to make a claim on that bear and interpret it away and, you know, just notice the ground you're standing on. Where are you standing? Oh, I'm in the forest. And I notice at once when she says that, a deep breath in, because the forest is animated, you know, this place. And she loves this place. So her body relaxes. Okay, now she's getting the ground under her feet, sense of support. Oh, I say, and I'm getting curious, you know, when you're in this place, do you walk alone in the forest? Or sometimes do you walk with a friend? Oh, she says, you know, actually, because I just live, you know, down the way, there's a dog that is part of our family that I walk with always. We're such deep companions. We're so close to each other. I go, hmm. So now with ground under the feet, a companion on her side, I say, you know, let's take a moment. Let's, turn around with the safety the protection the security the allied presence the support here if you turn instead of running from the bear and just turn around and ask who's visiting now who's chasing and she looks and the bear begins to become more and more visible and now standing ground, looking back instead of dismissing extinguishing shooting killing all those things that we would want to do with the bear, she looks and notices. And sure enough, I then ask the questions, very particular questions. You know, what color is the bear? Oh, she says, well, it's a kind of dark black with some brown. And then I ask, and how big is it? Well, it's a pretty big one, but you know, now that I'm seeing it more clearly, it's not that big, but it is here and it's present. Oh, I say, it's here, living image, right? It's here. Is it in the room someplace? She says, of course, yes. And I ask, well, where would it be right now? In the field of imagination, the field of dream where we're working? Oh, it's right here. People are immediate with that, by the way. I mean, it just takes a millisecond people see it. (laughs) Just in a moment, it's just uncanny how that works. Well, it's right here. Ah, now you're feeling, again, reminding her of the safety, and she's in community. I love working with dreaming community. Community is by far one of the best fields of experience and support that we can have. She's looking at Bear, right? In community, with her ally. The dog is next to her, ground under her feet. And she's starting to look. And now with particularity, brown fur. And I say, you know, what color are the eyes? Oh, she says. Oh, I see. And he looks more carefully and closely still. Oh, they're kind of brown and black. Oh, and I get curious. I'm wondering, you know. What are you noticing about Bear now? See, I'm not being directive. I just get curious and stay inside the flow. Oh, well, yeah. Well, it's not as threatening right now. It's kind of smaller, you know, than it was just a while ago. And we begin. We're now at the beginning place. Let's begin the process of getting to know this one. You know, this one as part of life. Now let's fast forward just for the fun of it, right? Now I'm getting to know Bear. And now we're going to give name a bear, you know, uh, name two bear, brown bear, black bear, Montana bear, mountain bear. And that's what resonated with her mountain bear. Now she is befriending mountain bear with dog on her side, you know, ground under her feet, protection. I'm there, the community's there, mountain bear. She gets to know this one. Do you know what a difference that made for her in her life to have mountain bear? as an ally in her life, rather than a nemesis, something so threatening. You know, now when I'm outside, when I'm in a threatening situation and mountain bear becomes companion, something very different happens in the quality of my life. And you can see passion, desire, unleashing maybe too strong a word gets evoked, okay? Why? Because I'm not spending all my life energy in trying to keep that one separate from me you know, trying to shut that one out somehow. Instead of using all my energy to push away and be on the, you know, the place of feeling threatened and, you know, off, I'm now able to stand ground and to be in companionship. Also, when you see that which is threatening somewhere else in your community, like a person or a partner or a colleague, you can see if you still don't have that, you know, put together in your own life, you're gonna feel always, you know, on edge with that and more energy gets dispensed. This way, here now, mountain bear as companion, now that threatening boss or, or friend or work situation or medical situation isn't as threatening because I am accompanied with an indigenous presence from the deep psyche imagination from the dream time. How awesome is that in life? Now, Truly. You know, I always have the thing that part of what we're doing is cultivating a council or a community of inner companions that we can walk in the world with, you know, in my own life. When I'm talking in front of the United Nations or in front of, you know, and I do a lot of that and I do a lot of work with big groups. If I just go up there by myself, one thing happens. Yeah, I can mobilize. I've learned how to do that. You know, I do a lot of preparation so I can do that piece. And I'll then go into overdrive and really try to drive it home, so to speak one thing happens. When I first take the moment to consult the inner companions and then go and make the move, something very different happens. I feel supported. I'm coming from the inside out. I'm present now, and the intelligence that's alive in me gets sparked by the intelligence that's indigenous to these living images, these dear soul companions that come forward in dream and imagination.
0: This is so intriguing, Steve, in many ways. One of the things that's occurring to me now is how, again, I keep bringing it back to meditation, but how in so many meditation traditions or spiritual traditions, you know, there's this kind of very strong downplaying of this kind of material, you know, that we don't want to go into the mind in this way. You know, we want to stop thinking or just have a blank out, or some kind of deep void type experience, makes up a lot of spiritual practice. And another part does use visions and does use this dream-like material, but it's usually like received, you know, it's a tradition. And so there's a particular image, like an archetypal image that the tradition uses in a visionary way, but it's not as you use this word indigenous, it's not indigenous to the person's own psyche, right? It's from the tradition, not from the personal psyche. So there's no real room for people to bring their individual dreams and their imagination to the practice. So I'm curious, you know, how can a person use dream work to access their own spirituality, their own soul, contacting, you know, the deeper things in life, In a more integrated and powerful
1: way. Yes. I'll personalize that. I start the morning with noticing what comes forward in the night. Who's visiting now? I write that down. Next thing I'll do is to, you know, make some notations what's happened the day before, the last 48 hours that bumps up against that. And are the dreams, you know, sharing something insightful about what I'm missing or something that needs more attention or so on and so forth? I'll do that. And then I go to the next possibility, right? I get curious. I allow the images to come to life and tell their stories. Instead of me speaking for them, I listen deeply to their stories.
0: So you're not just treating them as like a part of me and they're just somehow expressing a thing about me.
1: No, they come from the deeper wells. And for me, it is a spiritual praxis in a way. It's a dream praxis or a praxis of imagination. Because what happens next is that it's possible that as the dreams come forward, there's yet another opportunity because the dreams open portals, so to speak. I mean, yes, they present, but if they originate in deeper imagination, right, they offer the way back into deeper imagination. And that's what I do is I follow their lead and I go into a quality of experience that is quite imaginal. You know, I just follow the figures down and about and around, walking along with, not leading, not explaining, simply one of the troop, one of the many companions. You know, when I start the day that way, it changes. Plus who I am and how I am. And if I do a piece of writing that follows, or I'm going to work on a project, or even, you know, given what I do in terms of working with institutions, working with a budget or anything, the capacity, the intelligence, the clarity, the desire is opened up from the inside out. You know, energetically, I'm more engaged and in alignment. In terms of perception, I'm clearer, so I have a clearer mode of perception. And I'm accessing the wellspring you know the genius of imagination, and even you now I'm just thinking of this is great conversation, Michael. Uh, just two days ago, I was at the ocean here in Santa Barbara, and I go into the ocean. I'm so fortunate to live here now, and so I go and swim and free dive each day. And yet uh, two days ago, I was walking about, and uh, I noticed this little girl and she must have been three years old there with her parents. And she was just in this kind of reverie, right? And, you know, I name it reverie. For her, no, it's not reverie. She's playing in the sand, making a little castle, putting in shells and rocks and all kinds of things, but then starts talking with the, you know what she's making. She's just in the whole realm, you know, engaged, involved, interactively with all these things coming to life, right? And it reminded me of when I was a little boy. When I was a little boy in the backyard of our suburban home, you know, right outside of Los Angeles, I would do that. I would sit in the dirt there and play with the dirt and, and get rocks. And even when the bugs came, ugh. Oh, and the best part of all was once a kind of a little frog popped out and I made some water. And the, You know, I'm in imagination. In that time, I'm inside of imagination, not outside looking in, like we mentioned earlier, inside of imagination. Oh, my goodness. You know, I don't know if it would be meditation per se, but I'm inside the field of experience that feels so qualitatively meditative and reflective. It is really quite an extraordinary. Is my mind busy? No, not at all. Because I'm not in mind, I'm in imagination, and I'm in curiosity and I have to say, in the world of today, it's very helpful to be in curiosity. Now, you know the teachings that I'm doing, and I'm on you know webinars and Facebook live you know now almost once a week, because people are so concerned with their immunity and with their health and with the agitation and the stress. So I'm talking a lot about you know moving from a place of anxiety and really difficult distress times into a creative incubation and using this time that way and the reason that I mentioned curiosity is when we're curious and when we're anchored in the deep imagination in the autonomy of imagination just like that little girl is or I am when I'm working up and work with dreams in the way I've described I'm not anxious nor distressed at the same time they're reciprocal inhibitors that one doesn't correlate with the others. So to the extent that I can do that is the extent that my breath deepens, you know, my muscles relax, my immunity goes up, I'm not in adrenaline, I'm in excedral choline, you know, it's a whole different set. And it's very good right now, you know, to calm and to reconnect with deeper sense of self and well-being. And it's great for health. It's just very, very additive in terms of supporting immunity and supporting our physical and psychological well-being.
0: And so do you find that people are having a qualitatively different kind of dream or very different sorts of images? How is the dream experience right now reflecting this, you know, tremendous fear and uncertainty out there in society?
1: Yeah, there's five themes that are very prevalent right at the moment. One is, of course, something alien that's coming into the dream And more often than not, it has a poisonous quality to it. Another is, sadly, a dream with somebody carrying a gun. So it's a shooter-type dream, of course. Right. Another theme is the zombie theme. There's a zombie somehow, somewhere, someplace in the dream. These are the nightmarish dreams that are coming forward. Another dream theme that's up right now is being chased. And there is another dream theme, too. I mean, there's always many, many dream themes, but the ones that are most Up at the moment, as you asked, is bodies of water. For whatever reason, bodies of water. And, you know, there's the tidal wave, which is the fearful image and theme, but also being next to a body of water and not knowing exactly how to navigate that is one that's up. So there are themes because, you know, we all. Are part of a field of imagination. We all are. We all are part of a collective enterprise. You know, like the rhizome, you know, root systems of <laughs> trees and in, in the forest that we mentioned. So we're all part of it. And those themes tend to come up. The difference is intending to those themes. My offering is not to run away, and not to distract. And not to minimize or to, you know, make those just expressions of a hard way of being in the world. The other possibility is to listen to the dream and notice where the spark of genius, the guidance is. Just yesterday, when I was on Facebook Live yesterday, I worked with a live demonstration, which I'm doing now. Every week when I'm doing the little talk that proceeds, I then invite a dreamer from you know, somewhere in the audience that comes, they share a dream and I demonstrate what I'm talking about. So it's actual, alive, you know, very real. And she was dreaming and here's the dream and she's at a table and there's a little girl, blonde hair, gorgeous little girl, maybe about, I you want to say four or five years old. And she's teaching English to this young one who's from another country, right? everything's going well. She sees a sparkle in her eye. She's alive and happy and engaged. And then something happens. And what happens is that something comes forward, a threat presents, and there's a figure that comes forward. And before you know it, the little girl's head is lopped off. Oh my God. You know, that's horrible, horrible in this setting. Then what happens is another head of a puppet gets lopped off so now you're seeing two figures without heads right the dreamer in the dream says, oh no this is terrible so she actually picks up the two heads and she says and this is the way of dreams right dreams speak in poetics in imagination and in symbology so she picks up two heads and she puts them into this car in in, not into the car but into a, a place in the car and drives off and then laments She's so frightened. The dreamer is upon awakening. She's so sad because right before waking up, she says, I just don't want to forget you. I don't want to forget you. I need to stay connected. Therefore, I'm going to take the heads to always remind me of your presence. Okay. End a dream. Wow. Wow. The dream describes the times, right? And also, you know, I could say, yeah, you can go to the headless maiden, you can go to archetypal psychology and work with myth, and of course that has merit. You know, the head's being chopped off, you can talk about her rational mind being separate. You know, you can do all those kinds of things. You can. And are they useful? Of course they are. And to neglect going there, maybe that's a mistake. However, in addition, something else is going on. It was given with the dream, right? I don't want to forget you. What doesn't she want to forget? She doesn't want to forget sitting at that table with that little girl in front of her, right? And interacting in that way. Because when she was interacting in that way, something came to life inside of the dreamer, inside of her. She felt a yearning. She remembered her yearning for mentoring, for being involved in imaginal play, particularly with a young one. Do you see? So what can we do with that? Well, it's a living image, right? It's in the dream. How can you spend time with this one? How can you, in fact, over the next five days, invite her as a companion to walk with you? In fact, rather than you teaching her, what can she do in terms of gifting you? So when that happened, tears started streaming down her cheeks, you know? Whoa, Steve. I've been so isolated and distanced socially that I've forgotten that whole place inside. Yes, I see it's not just about threat and not about some horrible thing about getting heads lopped off. That got my attention for sure. It's about reconnecting with that little one, that little girl, and reengaging deep imagination and taking that with me over these next days. Oh my, honestly. It was something. Oh, you can only imagine the chat rooms just lighting up, right? (laughs) Everybody's going, whoa, okay, I like this, right? Because she was touching into deep imagination, you know, and she now has a person that can be really a guide for her, honestly, you know? So walk with the little girl and let her show you for an hour a day. You know, let's not get overly nuts about it, but for one hour a day, what would it be like to walk and allow her to take lead? So that's what we did.
0: Yeah, so what an alchemical transformation from the terrifying, you know, decapitation dreams that seem to be coming out of anxiety and fear, and to turn it into this, not turn it into, but discover its innate quality of curiosity and connection and wisdom, and etc. I mean, it's amazing.
1: Yes, and I think the word, Michael, that you just used, to discover— to get curious, to allow the discovery to come forward and present itself. Yes, I totally concur.
0: Another thing that's coming to mind for me right now is back when I was helping you with your wonderful book, Dreamtending, you brought up a topic that you called the counterfeit image. And I found this topic really, really interesting. In this interview, you're talking about living images and you're talking about indigenous images, meaning they're you know, innate to the psyche of the dreamer, or they're natural somehow. But you brought up at the time that there's this other kind of image, what I would call sort of like a corporate, Teflon, non-Indigenous image, or I think you used the phrase um, counterfeit image, and that it was almost like media images and advertising images had colonized people's inner life, their imaginal world, to a level that you had never seen before, you know, at that time. And that was, you know, 15 years ago or so, pre-the internet becoming such a big deal. And so I haven't talked to you about this since then, but something that I wonder about often is, I'm wondering, like, I wonder what's been happening with the counterfeit images since that time i mean and here you are working with people every day on their dream life so i'm just curious i've been wanting to ask you this question for years you know what's going on with the counterfeit images now and what do you make of it yes it's certainly
1: captured my attention even more so in the world of today than the world of 15 years ago you know. The sci-fi suggested at some point we'd all be cyborgs. Well now we all are cyborgs, right? We all are codependent on the machine. So in addition to ecological, you know, threat, you know, and let's be direct about it, impending I don't want to say apocalypse, that's too easy to say, but certainly impending intensity of the ecological trouble.
0: Catastrophe that is definitely coming, yes
1: the catastrophe that's definitely coming, yes, it's all too real now, particularly here in California and so many places actually around the world. Well, in addition to that, of course, is issues of social justice, absolutely, you know, and two, the threat of illness, of course. Another threat that sometimes doesn't get as much attention, but more and more so, and that threat, the fear is the takeover of the machine. And that, in particular, in the world of today, has really elevated now to the place of, I would say, crisis. And what I mean by that is, you know, now people are asked to do homeschooling so much of the time. Kids are so, so much into the games and gaming and onto the screen for a variety of different uses. And hey, is it all bad? No, it's not all bad. But is it all consuming? Totally consuming. Totally consuming. And it's becoming a crisis. And that's where the counterfeit images begin, I think, originate. They originate not in the indigenous psyche. They originate in the programmer's code, if you know what I'm saying. We are being programmed to really buy things. You know, we're being programmed to imagine ourselves in a particular way i mean who hasn't selected an avatar in one way or the next and so we're designing who we're supposed to be how many likes we're getting determines our self-esteem you know it could be said that technology now is almost controlling us that's the worry or it divides us into different you know sectors and places certainly it's used commercially right the competitive edge financially is dependent a lot on technologically how you work with the software and how you manipulate behavior and buying patterns and on and on it goes right so to the extent that technology is alienating us from ourselves or polarizing us from one another is the extent that these images are just flooding into our experience now it's not even trillions it's way beyond that now the amount of technological imagery is being blasted through the social networks and that we're exposed to each and every day. It's now over the 50% mark. So we are on screen now more than 50% of the time in any given day. So it's finally hit over that edge. You know, people, uh, when they get up in the morning, if I were to ask the question, so people can (laughs) reflect on this, what percentage of people do you imagine in the morning before they get out of bed, first thing they do is reach for their cell phone And if you're thinking 50%, no. 60%, no. 80%, uh uh. If you go into 80s and 90s percent, that's the percentage of folks that will reach for the cell phone and check. You want to see what hit you got during the night, right? You're looking for usually something positive, something hopeful, or checking something, some information piece. And we're just, we're programmed that way. The upside of that is, yeah, see, I have a strong belief that we need to co-companion technology in order to access the deep imagination. And I'm writing lectures on that and books about that. And, you know, I'm doing a lot with that. In addition, though, we need to be conscious how influential technology is and that those images are in our lives. How influential they are. So, when the dream time comes, once upon a time, we could just work with dreams and the images, living images, like I was suggested, and imagine that they're all sourced in the organicity of imagination. Well, no. Now, most of them are sourced in the machine, you know, of the programmers and of the corporate entities. That's where most of them are sourced. So how do you differentiate is the question, you know. And I go to some trouble to really see into and experience how we differentiate from what I call counterfeit images, those that are part of an agenda. Usually to drive business traffic, and or those that have an indigenous route that takes us back to the deeper places of our humanity and our humility and our love and our eros and our desire and our yearning. You know, that's what's so important to me. So certainly, dreamtending is an approach that offers that opportunity in hosting the images, befriending the images. We're less likely to get caught in the control of the images.
0: It's so intriguing. So how would you direct someone towards being able to distinguish these images?
1: Well, first, you know, if you go to dreamtending dot com, which is the website where a lot of stuff is on about dreamtending, there's two or three different pieces there that can help not only give example but to explain and so on and so forth. In addition though, I do three things. You know, when I'm listening to a dream I'll listen, and most of the images in today's world are somewhat what I want to say homogenized. You know, they're somewhat contrived, so to speak. They're pre programmed, so they're familiar. So I hear those images, and yes, I can go deeply in each and every image, regardless of where it's sourced, and try to follow that image into its unique, you know, space, its generative spark. Easier though, when I'm listening to dream, which of the images holds a certain oddity, a little oddity, something out of the ordinary, right? Because that which is a little odd isn't as homogenized. It's not as contrived. It sparks a different kind of curiosity. It's still rooted in the loam of organicity that is the substance of imagination. So number one, look for the oddity in the dream. And the second is, is there something in the dream, the most forgotten part of a dream in the world of today's dream work is the landscape, the setting of the dream. Remembering that dreams come in settings, in characters, in action between things, and in feeling, experience. So we don't pay much attention to the setting, I do. I like to know from the beginning how the psyche opens up the dream, right? Are we in a forest scape like we talked about? Are we in a cityscape? You know, are we in outer space scape? You know, are we in the ocean place? So, where is the landscape? And if we look and listen and host, befriend the landscape and walk about the landscape in the dream, we just pass that over. Oh, the dream is taking place in the forest. And then we get to the storyline. Of course, we're fascinated by the storyline, right? We're all part of that kind of persuasion. We all listen to talk radio, CNN, you know, on social media. We're all part of the narrative. So, rather than jumping so quickly, getting curious about the ground that I'm on right? Whether it be land or city or space or ocean, what landscape am I in? And then taking the time to walk about and notice what captivates our attention, what captivates our curiosity. And that also will be a way out of the programmed dream space into something a little more indigenous or rooted to the natural rhythms of psyche. The psyche of nature, you know, is in large part, part of our human nature. So to follow those footprints gives us access to that which lives most deeply. So that's the second way of doing it. And the third way, you know, is an image comes and it has a kind of monstrous quality to it, or a beautiful quality to it, you know? I mean, honestly, what's more difficult in the world of today to deal with our nightmares? Shit, we all have nightmares, right? It's part of it. What's as difficult as the nightmarish is the erotic and the loving. And I don't mean just sexual eroticism, although that's wonderful. I'm also meaning the way of making deep, authentic contact with another. That in the world of today is particularly threatening. So, you know, looking for those cues, look for that which is particularly beautiful. You know, something that is particularly, you know, unique in its way of being. It's another way to get into the indigenous rhythms of the psyche of the dream rather than getting caught in the counterfeit, you know, pre programmed expressions.
0: This idea of images kind of being implanted in our psyche all day long is so powerful and it seems to be such a major part of everyone's life today, as you brought up. It's really fascinating to think about that impact and how to work with it. And I see how working with the living images can really help us to, I don't know, kind of get back to what's really going on inside us. Kind of leads me to a final question, which is, what do you see as sort of the greatest potential of working with dream and imagination for people today. In a way, I want to ask, what's your most beautiful vision for this work? Yeah. With
1: the image that just came to mind that seems particularly vital, I just got touched deeply by it. And I have so much belief in it. It's part of what my life's work is at the moment. It is extraordinary when people come together in community, small communities, and share a dream with one another. A couple of things happen. One is the field between, betwixt and between, everybody amplifies, it resonates. There's a presence and a resonance that happens in that field. And then imagination opens and people begin to share at that dimension of experience. So they're not sharing only through their heads and what's going on to the day. It's not a psychological group per se. It's not figuring out problems. It's not problem solving group. It's sharing from the place of the psyche of the place of dream. So it takes on a life of its own. And I know when those communities start meeting that way, they just go on and on and on. Because, you know, people that are sensitive and imaginative from the beginning really got cut off early on in life. That's where the hurt is, right? So many of us have that sensitive kind of imaginative quality that was so extraordinary. And then for reasons that are for each of us different but obvious, we've had to protect ourselves and shut that down a bit and take the path that was prescribed most probably by cultural norms and expectations and such, but to reconvene in these small little communities of imagination, of dream, right? And we always start actually with a meditative practice and with breath work. It's first centering, deepening, breath, getting quiet, quieting down, quieting the mind, right? And then allowing the images to come forward from the inside out to be shared betwixt and between people in community. And then... Following, not leading, the figures as they begin to reveal, present themselves, and then experiencing the incredible intelligence, you know, the innate intelligence, the incredible possibilities and opportunities that open up when we are able to listen into their stories, in addition to telling them ours we allow them to tell us what's moving through them from the inside out so answer your question for me the blessing would be the vision would be just as what's happening now in so many of the communities i'm working in we spawn off these small dream sharing groups and it's just been really something to work in community with dream or imagination at the center place
0: Steve, it's so great to talk to you, man. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: Oh, it was a delight. Thank you, Michael. Great to be reconnected again.
0: Yeah, it really is. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.